And one CSX is all about having our employees feel respected, valued, appreciated, included, and listened to. And we're going to serve our customers. We're going to focus on serving our customers better. In my first eight months in the job, I spent I took 41 visits to, to locations on our network unannounced, like just show up, talk to people, ask them how it's going. What can we do to help? What are your problems? What's bothering you? What's frustrating you? Again, listening, building a relationship, and then going fixing those problems. So we were the first railroad to offer paid sick leave to our employees, our union employees, because that was an issue that came up in the negotiations and with Congress. Hey, let, let's let's not be modest here. You guys helped avert a national rail strike in, in doing that. No question. And, and that would be catastrophic to the economy, which is why Congress intervened. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. I am so excited today because we have a very special guest, longtime friend of mine, Joe Henricks, current CEO of CSX, former president of Ford Motor Company, Alan Mullally's closest protege at Ford. When Joe and I met back in, in 2005, I think he was head of manufacturing and there was no executive at Ford Motor Company that more got and grasped and used Alan's working together principles than Joe. Joe, welcome to the show. Oh, Bryce, thank you for the kind introduction. It's great to see you again. Great to see you. So I understand you're you're in, in Baltimore right now at the B&O Museum. What's going on there? I am. You can see right behind me is a map of the museum. We actually just announced a $5 million gift to reinvent the entrance to the museum and create a CSX Bicentennial Garden because the B&O Railroad is the original railroad of the United States founded in 1827. So in 2027, it's going to be celebrating its 200th birthday, the Bicentennial. And that's the, ge the genesis of CSX is B&O Railroad. So we'll both be celebrating our 200th birthday. So we were here with the governor, Governor Westmore, now making the announcement, investing in the community, making an amphitheater and an open space for the community around the museum and just a great day overall. So great to be here, but also great energy and great enthusiasm for the railroad. Awesome. And for, you know, we have a lot of listeners in other countries. And, and for those who don't know, CSX is one of the largest railroads in the United States, probably one of the largest railroads in the world, I'm guessing, as, as well. We have about 21,000 miles of rail. Um, we're east of the Mississippi. So the way the U.S. for the rest of the world is set up, there's two western railroads and two eastern railroads in the U.S., for freight, and we're the largest um, on the eastern part of the United States. Twenty-six states of the country are what we represent, and yeah, we move a lot of goods. It's it's a good business, and one of the cleanest and most efficient ways to move goods too. I will add. I'm very passionate, as as you know, Joe, about railroads because my grandfather worked for what used to be one of the largest Western railroads, Southern Pacific. Uh, um, and so uh, I think rail is, is something that, unfortunately, in this country, we have taken our eye off the ball from times to times and, uh, and to our... Well, we're working hard to change that, but exactly. you're right. I mean, rail is four times more fuel efficient, better for the emissions than trucks. Um, about 40% of the goods in America that move more than 500 miles move 
via rail. Almost all the big bulk things like chemicals and coal and grain and that all move rail. And so we're a big part of the infrastructure, the economy, kind of the backbone, but usually stay in the background. But, you know, Americans have a great nostalgia and great romantic kind of history with railroads. And we want to bring that to life again and make the, make the whole economy and society proud of our railroads. I was just, I was just, it's funny, you know, that I, I didn't, I forgot that we were talking about this today. Last week I was, I was in Los Angeles, uh, hanging out with my dad and my uncle. We went down to, to what used to be the old LA yard where my grandfather was, was ran the, the switching yard there. It's gone. They, they you know, that most of it's gone. And it's well, like, the, the big cities, you know, we grew up, yeah. we, the railroads grew up before the cities grew up. So we have a lot of land that's very desirable to the cities, yeah. as you might imagine. <laughs> One of the one of the funny things about this job is I'm frequently getting incoming requests on, hey, we'd like to you know buy this land or get this part of, and we're right down downtowns of major cities because we, again they grew up around us and um, and most of the time we're kind of hidden, you know, you'll, yeah. our rail yards are huge, but they'll be in Chicago and you won't even know they're there unless you're flying overhead and then people are like, I didn't know this big thing was there, so I'm sure you know, I mean, we don't go west, but I'm sure yeah. out in LA that was valuable land that the railroad yeah. decided probably was worth more to sell than to keep as a yard. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk more about railroads and, and disrupting railroads. But before we get to that, I got to start with where you and I met Ford Motor Company. Um, and, you know, as I said in the introduction, and it's no exaggeration, um, you more than any executive at Ford really got what Alan was was bringing and 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 you made it your own. You practiced it at Ford. T- tell me, tell me what you saw in Allen that that made you kind of kind of say, "Hey, this guy's got something that, that's that's worth uh, listening to." Yeah, like you said, Bryce, I was very fortunate to, to work with Alan Lolly when he was CEO of Ford, and he came in at the right time. I mean, your book tells the story. American Icon's a great read about what happened. But um, Alan, what I saw in Allen is he. First of all, he came as an outsider, so he came from Boeing to Ford, and he had he was humble about that. He didn't come in, you know, wanting to criticize everything about Ford, even though we were in a difficult situation. He wanted to learn. He asked a lot of questions. But the great some of the great things about Alan is he infectious positive energy. You know, just you know, just that energy around we're going to find a solution, and you're part of the solution, and we're working together. But he also put so much emphasis on working together and leadership behaviors and and how much how important servant leadership is and how important the the environment you create for people helps to help bring success to an organization it's of course true that his governance processes were also very core to his philosophies around how you govern and how, what structure you put in place to bring people together to work together but i think the most powerful things about alan were just those things it was this in, enormous relentless focus on working together and how leadership behaviors and leadership attitudes help make that happen, creating a safe environment for people to talk about data, to talk about the problems, to find solutions together, and then just this constant positivity. I mean, in very difficult situations, thanking people when they bring when they brought challenges to us, when they brought problems to us, or or just reminding people they're part of the solution, not part of the problem. Just a number of these things I'll, will never leave my mind because they were such a critical part of what we did. But but even today, I saw him last month. His energy is still infectious. He's still a great personality. He draws people together. He really does. And, and, you know, I mean, that was very different than the kind of prevailing 
climate at Ford before Allen, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, Ford grew up as, you know, kind of fiefdoms onto themselves. Ford Europe, Ford North America, even the brands, Ford, Lincoln, Mercury back in the time, South America, Asia Pacific. Um, and part of the big initiative that Allen brought to, to the table was around, let's let's be one Ford. Let's, let's come together as one Ford. And that one word is really critical. We'll talk about it um, later, I think, probably about CSX. But one Ford was, was, he said, one Ford, one team, one plan, one goal. Profitable growth for all, all stakeholders, bringing everybody together. Back to this inclusion, this teamwork, this working together. But this oneness was about everything. It was about bringing the company together because it was it was basically five or six. Well, when Alan got there, we also had the Premier Auto Group brand. So we had, yeah. um, you know, we had Jaguar, Mazda, Land, Rover. Jaguar Land Rover, Aston yeah. Martin, Volvo. And so we had all these other brands. So the brands were separate companies and then the country or the regional businesses were separate. And so he really said, let's bring this all together as one company, one team, working on with just one plan and one goal together. And, and that really was a uniting force of bringing people together. And then the other piece of that was prescriptive expectations around leadership behaviors and how we treat and work with each other. Um, things like, you know, um, never have fun at someone else's expense or things of that nature. A data sets you free. A lot of these phrases that we still remember. Um, but all that coming together was so different than what it was before, because before it was a lot of political, um, you know, infighting around these fiefdoms, around these different you know, parts of the business. And Alan wouldn't have any of it. You know, and I, I, my impression, you know, you and I obviously met before Alan came in probably by almost two years. It it struck me at the time that you were not a big part of that even before Alan came in. No, it's never been part of my, my value system was always about positive energy, working together. Um, leadership is about serving others, helping other people be successful. I think that's obviously what contributed to my, you know, upward mobility, even obviously before my Alan got there, because I wanted to create a different environment. I wanted to, I learned from the Japanese. I spent a year at a Japanese transplant early in my career, like my second, third year out of college. Um, a whole different atmosphere in the auto industry about how you treat people, what, what are you trying mm -hmm. to create together? And I just always believed that we would get better results and get more done by working together and creating a team. And so even when I was a production line, first line supervisor out of college, I would ask employees, what can I do to help? How can I help you? And it just changed the dynamic of the relationship and it led to better results. So um, when Alan got here, it was like, you know, wow, where have you been? This is exactly <laughs> This is exactly who I am as my core values and my principles. Right. I learned some things, of course, from Alan, but but this is it was perfectly aligned with my values and my priorities as a leader. That's 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 awesome. I mean, it must have been like a breath of fresh air. Um, and uh, so so what what you know? Talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about like how you first started working with Alan. I mean, obviously, you. You are you are one of the heroes of my book. You and Marty Malloy spearheaded probably one of the biggest, most important parts of of the transformation that that Alan undertook at Ford, which was which was completely changing the dynamic with United Auto Workers, doing something that had previously been believed to be impossible, reopening a contract with them, and uh, you know, tell us a little bit about. That in and also that in the context of working together, because I know that the relations with labor was a big part of this working together philosophy. 
There's no question. I think it's a significant component of how Ford was able to, you know, go its own way. And, and as you, as you again, called out nicely in the book, I American Icon, when you think about it, um, Alan got there in the fall of 06. Um, we had been through a North American restructuring plan already um, underway, a lot of plant closings, a lot of negativity, a lot of, you know, a need to, to really invest in the product, but also to reduce the manufacturing capacity because our volumes had declined and we were losing money. Um, Alan came in, of course, and was the face of, of, of Ford to raise the $23 billion, which then helped uh, give us the, the path to be able to do the things we wanted to do, which is a lot of money, of course as we borrowed that much money um, to make that happen. But, you know, one of the things that Alan did well was he asked a lot of questions and he, he did it. He tried to do it in a very you know non-confrontational way. And he would always, so he'd pull me aside all the time because he wanted to understand the labor component of it because I had a lot of experience in it. And as you mentioned, Marty was still a good friend of mine, was a great partner. And he would ask the questions like, you know, so tell me why we can't reduce people or, you know, because we have the jobs bank. And we had the gen obligations, guaranteed employment numbers. So we basically had a situation set up where even if volumes declined or other things happened, you were paying people full time not to work. Um, well, let, let me just jump in here if I can, Joe. This was actually the very first major story I wrote when I started covering Ford for the Detroit News in, in 2005 was, I don't remember the number, it was like, you know, 1,100 people paid not to work or something like this. And and I and reporting this story, my my head, I mean, I my mind was was well and truly boggled because I didn't, you know, I, I grew up in California, didn't know how things worked in, in the in the industrial parts of the country. And and folks, people at this time that Joe's talking about, and I went and sat with a lot of them, they were getting paid on average seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year to to show up at a Ford factory and spend all day in a break room watching uh, war documentaries on, on the History Channel, doing crossword puzzles and getting getting paid, like I said, $70,000, $80,000. Some of them for years had been doing this. And under the current contract that, that had been negotiated in better times, there was nothing Ford could do about that. And, and as you say, Alan was... <laughs> He was like, explain to me again how this works. I felt like, and Alan was the kind of guy that would ask you a question, he'd answer it. And then he would, if he didn't like the answer, he'd kind of ask it nicely again. Um, <laughs> and then, and then he wouldn't say like, you know, you're wrong or that doesn't make any sense. He just would look at you. And, they, and then by a day later, he'd ask you the same question again. And then he would ask you the same question again. So he kept asking me the same question because he didn't, he didn't, I don't think he, he wanted to ever grasp the answer because it, you know, so, but, but, but that, that's, that kind of gets us to, our approach, my approach, frankly, even before Alan got there, was to have an honest dialogue with the UAW leadership and our employees about this, not just the guaranteed employment piece, but just the competitiveness of our company and where we really were and have an honest dialogue on it, which hadn't really happened because there was Ford and the UAW had a great relationship amongst the big three traditionally, but it was it was more of a we don't talk about tough things. We don't fight about things. We don't it was it was it was let's all get along. Um, and our company was at risk of, you know, not ever, you know, not even surviving. So we had a big meeting in Vegas, you cover it in the book, um, where I, for the first time, kind of show them all the union leaders, kind of our, our competitive challenges, where we rank on safety, quality, efficiency, what it means, how much it's costing us, all these things by plant. And we requested um, each of the plants to open up the contract locally 
to do competitive operating agreements to get more competitive locally to be able to contribute to our success. And, and I give a lot of credit to the UAW leadership at the time. Bob King was the president of, sorry, was the vice president of the Ford department. They had the courage to say, we're, we think there's a risk here. We're going we're gonna to try and do this. So we actually, in 2006, went plant by plant. I think with, with exception of two plants, we did com new competitive operating agreements that were significantly improved the efficiency and reduced some of the, of the you know, friction stuff that we had in the business. But it didn't get to the core of the, some of the challenges. And then you fast forward 2007, we did the UAW negotiations, and that's when the VEBA, the Voluntary Employee Beneficiary Association, put the retiree health care obligations, which were a significant burden to the balance sheets of the auto companies, um, to the UAW trust. And this was, this was huge. I remember at the time, I know that we calculated our paper that on every car built in the United States, for a Ford built versus the same class of car built by Toyota in the United States, $2,400, I think, added cost to the Ford just to service this, this, these retiree healthcare costs and stuff. And if you think about that, folks, when you're talking about millions of vehicles being built, $2,400 per vehicle that Toyota could plow into R&D, could plow into making more efficient factories, could plow into marketing. And is it any wonder then that you see this kind of relentless increase in the market share of, of particularly the Japanese automakers in this, in this decline of the American automakers? And that's why it was so important to tackle this, right? It was. And so it was foundational. I mean, it was, I don't remember the exact number, but it was certainly a lot bigger than the actual labor content of the vehicle, um, uh, which is fascinating, right? So, right. It's mind boggling. It's part of the history because there were so many retirees compared to active workers because of the downsizing that occurred. You got to remember that, you know, in the 60s, GM and Ford had, you know, combined well over 50% market share in the US. And then, you know, by the time we're talking about here, it's in the 30s. So just a massive, plus, you know, a lot of stuff was done in-house, you know, vertically integrated before and changed. Also pre-automation too, a lot. Correct, a lot of reasons. Yeah. So, um, but, and then in 2007, we did the agreement and we introduced some new concepts. And um, it was fascinating because it was a manual, it, it was believed to be a monumental agreement and it was in many ways. Yeah. Um, however, that's before the financial crisis hits. Right. Then the global financial crisis hits and like, oh my gosh, now we're really in trouble. And Before we jump onto that, though, I want to stop at this point because this is really important. This is something that we talk about a lot on this show and we talk about with our clients a lot is, you know, a lot of times leaders are afraid of transparency. They're afraid of sharing too much, of, 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 of lifting the tent up too high yeah. internally, I'm talking about. Yeah. And one of the things that you guys did that was so central to be able to get this, which was unprecedented, was to give the books to the UAW, yep. which had never been done before. And I think it speaks to the fact that a lot of times we as leaders were afraid to share too much, but sometimes it's that sharing, bringing people in that allows you to have more open and honest conversation about what needs to be done. It's, it's a great point, Bryce. And frankly, to get to the level of change that we needed, and the acceptance of the need for that change, there needed to be a, a foundation of trust. And there's no trust without a relationship. So we had to build that relationship um, deep, more, more deeply than had ever been done before. So you, I, you call it out in your book as well, but we had pr private meetings with Alan, Malali, myself, Marty Malloy, Joe Lehman, who was the head of HR at the time, and Don LeClaire, who was CFO, 
with the president of the UAW, Ron Gettelfinger, and the vice president for Ford, Bob King. We had several secret, many secret private meetings. We went through all the numbers, went through everything, showed them the plan and what Alan was thinking about doing, even with the brands at that time, and et cetera, because we had to build a foundation of trust so that they knew that the reasons why we were trying to do something were genuinely needed and, they, and what the background for that was. But also then we could, but we could listen to each other because also the UAW needed things, right? I mean, how we took care of the people, how we treated them, how we handled all this, the, how we made our decisions were all critically important as well. And eventually there's also this concept of equity of sacrifice. We're all in this together. So, you know, there has to be some equity of sacrifice, which comes later. But importantly, you know, I went out and when we did these agreements with the plants, I went and spoke, did town halls with all the employees, which we never did before. And, um, and we opened up, you know, they expose the, the data, just the data. Alan would say the data sets you free and we would just expose the data. But you're right. You have to have the confidence um, that people aren't going to misuse that data. But you also have to you have to be trustworthy enough that you can manage that relationship to make it work. But when you get to that point, you can have more meaningful dialogue about what's really important to each side and how can you find solutions together. You know, I remember sitting and talking with Ron Gettelfinger, the president of UAW, when I was researching my book. And, you know, he 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 said he couldn't stress more powerfully how important this this was, this sharing, because, you know, he was he was honest with me. He said, I didn't trust him. I thought, you know, they're always, you know, history of labor and management. You know, they're always trying to to wring one more one more drop of blood out of us. He said he's a crusty guy, as you remember. Um but um, but he said that we had our we had our uh, accountant look at uh, you know forensic econ- economist or account forensic accountant or something like yeah. that look at the books, and he said the guy called me and I said to him I said so are they lying to us and he says they're not lying to you he says it's worse than they're telling you he says I think that I think they're going to go out of business it's amazing they aren't already and he said when we when we when our own independent people were telling us this. He said, then I realized that, that, that Alan and Joe and Marty, they weren't lying to us. They were, they were, and, and they were asking our help to save the company. That's and right. that's why he was willing to, to get on board and do this. And I, I just think that's so powerful. It is. And I think it just, it goes to back to where you were starting, which is you have to invest in relationships to get them to a level of trust, which takes time and energy and communications and interaction. And oftentimes we think positional power or positions themselves dictate a relationship. You know, I'm CEO, so therefore we should have a relationship or therefore there should be. But in reality, um, you have to invest in it. And I spent many nights and days talking to Ron Gettelfinger on the phone, listening to his issues, what he was frustrated about, et cetera, which then opened the door to them uh, being open to us, opening the contract out of the negotiation period in 2009. as you referenced earlier, which was the critic, one of the critical moments of our turnaround um, because it enabled a number of things that happened after that. Um, and that was basically because they trusted us um, and they didn't trust the others. And, um, and we were able to get something done very quickly. And historically, back to our earlier conversation, we're able to eliminate the jobs bank and that construct in my office on the, on the uh, 12th floor world headquarters in February, 2009, with a handshake with Ron Gettelfinger and Bob King and some of his lieutenants, um, which changed the course of Ford and the industry in some respects. And the so, industry. Yeah. And it was, it, and so, but it, you know, that took years to get there of all the things that you were talking about, the investment in the relationship, the sharing of data, the transparency, 
being willing to go out there and, and talk to people and explain to them why, so that the, it wasn't the union telling them that we were telling them what was going on. And we were taking, I was getting the heckling and the booing and stuff at the meetings and stuff, because you have to be out there and they have to believe that you're, that you're sincere. And it's so important. I mean, this is again, something that we work on a lot with our clients and, and, and when we're teaching people as leaders too how to do this, because it's one of the most important things I feel like I learned from Alan is that if you can, if you could turn enemies into into friends, and if you could turn friends into active allies, it's it, it it's a force multiplier like you can't believe for your business. And you know, you guys did the same thing with the, with the suppliers. You did the same thing with with the dealers. Right. Turning all these key constituencies from first from adversaries to to feeling warm and fuzzy about about the, the potential of, of the future to then enlisting them and showing them it, it you know not in a machiavellian way in a really open and honest way showing them how if you help us with these things we need from you here's how it's going to benefit you and i think in any industry in any business in any organization even in nonprofits finding the, out how to how to take those constituencies listen to them as you said joe Hear, their, hear what their pain points are, hear what their issues are, figure out how to, you know, win-win is a, a word that is is used so much that it's almost meaningless, but, the, right. but really to create real win-win situations. If you can do that, they, then you're not just clearing away potential obstructions, you're creating a, t- a tailwind that's that's pushing you forward. That's, uh, that's so important. And, you know, that's one of the things we're trying to do at, at CSX. But when you, when you think back, you know, that, Getting advocacy across all the stakeholder groups, even as tough as it was, um, really helped. It's so, so helpful to accelerate the progress once we got through the tough stuff. Alan used to say that the ride up's going to be so re- magical, so <laughs> exhilarating, he used to say. Um, and he was right. And, you know, our stock went from like a dollar a share in end of 08 to 17, I think, in 18 months or something. And it really had to do with all these all this advocacy now coming out saying, you know, Ford is winning. It has a plan. And and bringing that to life really accelerated our progress. And and that's one of the greatest challenges is to have the um, stamina and the uh, have a priority on all the stakeholders to be able to bring them together to be part of that. That's amazing. What what are what, what are some of the other things that you learned during your time working with Alan as you advanced, you know, becoming not just, not just uh, head of manufacturing, but then later you were head of Asia Pacific. I remember you be, ultimately became uh, president of, of Ford. Yeah. What what were what are some of the other things you you learned along the way? Well, Alan was a master at using governance, what he called governance. So the structure of your meetings, how you run your business to enable teamwork and, and working together and using data to do that. He was the best I've seen at it. And he was, you know, he, he loves it. Um, and really making making data simple, making, ma- making charts and data simple to be able to know how things are going so you can keep things moving. Um, and you know what's changing, but you also, but bringing the people together with, with regularity every week, certain times, certain subjects, um, so that there was a repetition and there was a, uh, cadence to how you ran the business. It wasn't just about running the business, though. It was about bringing the team together and making sure the team was staying as one and working well together. I think people misunderstand some of the things and misinterpret some of the things he did. The governance was part to run the business and part to bring the team together and keep it together and keep it working together. And, and, and then he was the master watching behaviors 
and relationships and making sure that people were working together. And if they weren't, then he'd pull you aside and said, you know, it doesn't work for me or, you know, you know we'd have a conversation. Um, and um, I think that was one of the great things I learned from him. Um, and just the other thing that was fascinating to me that I've learned more over time, actually, was just the value of repetition. I mean, we used to joke that after seven years, we could say exactly everything Alan was going to say before he said it. <laughs> Um, because it was the same thing over and over again. But there's a there's a beauty and a simplicity, but also an effectiveness that comes from that repetition. I find myself now as CEO of CSX, you know, thinking, man, am I being too repetitive? Then I remind myself of, of Alan, because it takes a long time to get people to believe you're serious, but also to get the message all the way through the organization and and, and know you're not going away and know the, change, the priorities aren't changing. Um, and so... You know, he was saying the same thing about one team, one plan, one goal, one forward, you know, at end of year seven than he was at the beginning. And and just, you know, small, you know, small, medium, large car utilities and trucks all around the world. I can still say it all. But you know what? Yep. It's effective so because it, because it didn't it didn't dilute the message. And it, it let everybody know that these are the, still the priorities and this is how we're going to work together. Um, so those are a couple of things that come to mind um, when you think about Alan. It's so important, you know, and, and it, it's there's a lot of psychology and cognitive science that backs up the importance of this. And it's funny because, you know, I I I think I tell the story in the book. I know I've told it on the show before. You know, one, one of the first kind of frank conversations I had with Alan that kind of was like the moment where we switched from just being, you know, a reporter interviewing to, to, to having kind of off the record conversations was a, a couple weeks after the 2007 New York auto show, because as you know, Joe, in, 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 in New York, every spring at the auto show, one CEO is picked to kind of give a deep dive to all the financial analysts on wall street who followed the auto industry. And because this was Alan's first, first auto show after becoming CEO, he was, he was the 2007 guy. And, and, and he knew that I knew a lot of the financial analysts for the big banks and stuff. And, and so I went to the briefing and then I, uh, I went out and had lunch and dinner with several of them afterwards. And I happened to have an interview with him scheduled a couple of weeks later. And, and when I got in his office, he said, before we talk about stuff, put, put your, your notebook away and stuff. He said, I, I just want to know. He said, he said, I know, you know, a lot of the guys on wall street. So what did they think of my talk? And as you know, he had started his talk with the same four points, four point plan that he'd been hitting since December. We're going to restructure the company to operate properly, the changing demand and model mix, build cars and trucks people want and value, work together effectively as one team and, you know, finance the plan. And so he, he, he said, what did you think? And I said, what did they think of it? He said, and I said, well, do you want to know honestly? And he said, of course. He said, I wouldn't ask you if I didn't want to know honestly. I said, they hated it. And he said, what do you mean they hated it? And I said, well, Alan, you've been CEO for six months, more than six months now. And every time you've been speaking since December, you hit these same four points that you start everything with these four points. I don't want to work for the company. I wake up in the middle of the night saying these things. My wife asked me, what the heck's going on with you? You keep saying, you know, restructure the company to operate properly, the changing demand and model mix. And, and he said, he looked at me like with the most like yeah. dismayed look. And he said, but Bryce, we haven't done these things yet. So why would I say anything else? And it was like a V8 moment, you know, like a slap. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. yeah, why wouldn't you? Why would you? And it was just because, as you know, not just Ford, all the automakers, you know, 
they came up with new plans every six months and made little 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 uh, rubber bracelets with uh, you know bold moves and all this stuff on it and change put banners up and changed this and and and, and none of it ever happened. And then it would just, when the plan didn't succeed, you come with a new plan. And here's this guy who's saying, no, we're going to keep saying the same thing over and over until we achieve this. And actually, we're going to keep saying it after that because then it just changes what this means. That was so powerful. It was. And, that, and, that, and I, you know, it took, as I said, I have more appreciation for it now than I did then. Um, yeah. And, um, but you're right. There's all kinds of psychology to it. But it's just... We think because we interact so much with certain group, a smaller group of people, that they get it quickly. And they do because they live with you. But in four, we had 200,000 employees. So yeah. think how long it takes for the, those 200,000 employees. And plus, there's 10,000 dealers worldwide and, and all their employees. And then there's suppliers. Supplier. Yeah. So just think about how long it takes to really make it effective. And to, and to the point, if you haven't delivered it yet, why, why change it unless it's wrong? Um, right. Um, and in, in this case, it wasn't wrong. Right. So it took us what, you know, he came in and fall of 06. It took us till probably 09 when we got the final UAW deal to get the restructuring done to meet the current demand. Um, and, you know, and it took us several years to get the product mix right. And, you know, with all that work going on, we financed the plan pretty early, which was helpful. But, you know, so you're back to it, it you know. It took several years, so why why deviate? But I think I think sometimes we let the press or analysts or others influence us in a way that says, "Well, that's tired. Give us something new." Right. And yeah. Alan was confident enough in himself and believed enough that he he didn't he didn't succumb to that pressure. He just was relentless, relentlessly focused. Relentless focus. This is great. Let's take a short break. When we come back, I want to talk uh, about how you've taken some of these principles and brought them to CSX and, and the cool things that you're doing there to think differently about rail. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So, Joe, during the break, we were, we were talking with producer Sam about, about uh, the master class in leadership that he's been getting uh, producing this show. And you were making a really important point uh, to Sam about how important leadership is. Can you, can you, I, I'd like to, love if you share that with our listeners and viewers. Sure, sure, Bryce. I mean, actually, what I've learned in, you know, 30 some years of being in 10 years at General Motors, 19 years at Ford, now, you know, my first year at CSX, and I'm on the boards of a bunch of companies. It's not capitalists in short supply. It's actually not great ideas. Usually it's in short supply. What's in short supply actually are great leaders, people that people, leaders that people will follow that there's strong followership for the, for the right reasons, you know, for their, right. their values, because their principles, because of their leadership styles. And, and it's not really taught very well. I mean, it's learned more than taught. And so while business schools and earth attempt to try and teach leadership, I think that's one of the reasons why there's so many leadership books and podcasts and, and things that focus <laughs> on leadership because it's, it's a learned skill. Um, but it's, but 
Um, and it's not as easily taught in a school or in a setting. You have to experience it. You have to have emulate other people. You know, you, I've always said you can you need to learn as much from a bad leader as you do from a good leader because you want to absolutely know no 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 not what not to do. But it's just fascinating to me. I've learned over time. I mean, I, when I was at Ford Motor Company, we had two hundred thousand employees, and you know, I could probably count on one hand people I knew that I could put anywhere that I knew people would follow them. You know, yeah. Um, it was transferable skills amongst different parts of the organization. And so we need to continue to nourish and, and help people grow their leadership capabilities. And it starts with, I think, I believe, start with your values of are you here to help other people be successful or yourself? And oftentimes, right. oftentimes that's just the answer is the second one, which which gets in the way of, the, of progress. It's so important, you know, and, and it, I think a lot of people and I was I was honestly one of these people myself that a lot of us believe that leadership is is a born is a born trait and there, and certainly charisma and things like that are but but leadership can be taught and it it, it can be taught and, and and you know bad leaders can become good leaders and good leaders can become great leaders with effort you know and you you look at some of the most effective leaders i mean even alan you know even alan you know will tell the story that his first direct report quit because he, he he didn't like Alan looking over his shoulder and yeah. doing his job for him, and he learned from that. And you know, it's 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 so important for people to realize that you can learn to be a better leader. And also, you hit on another important point: the the tagline for our show here is is, is bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. I, I I developed that tagline before I launched the show. I was doing Seth a. a fellowship and podcast with Seth Godin. And one of his first assignments to us was we had to develop our tagline for our future uh, show uh, and then workshop it with the other participants. There's about a hundred people in our class. And, and when I put that out about 60 or 70% of the class were like, Oh, I give me chills when I heard that, you know, like I, I already want, I don't even know what your show's about, but I want to listen to it now. But about 30, 30% of the people, maybe a little more of the class were like, Oh, you can't say that. No, there's no such thing as bad leaders and stuff. And I said, let me tell you, I was, I was a journalist for 20 years, right? Covering companies all over the world. There's a lot of bad leaders. <laughs> and, you know, we have to acknowledge that because, because as you said, Joe, leadership really matters. You're absolutely right. Ideas are everywhere. I mean, I, I live in, in the periphery of Silicon Valley yeah. here. You go to the coffee shop here and get a cup of coffee in the morning, you hear three good ideas. And I'm not even joking. But in cap, same thing, capital in Silicon Valley, it's, you know, there's money rolling down the streets. But leadership and the ability to take those ideas and execute on them, and not just in the short term then. A lot of people, a lot of startups have people who can execute in the short term, but then when it that takes off, they can't steer the rocket ship. That's so important. So that's why all this stuff matters so much, I think. So talk, talk to us a little bit about how you've taken what you learned from, from Alan and others in, in your experience in, in the auto industry and brought it to a very different industry, the railroad industry. Yeah, it's fascinating. People ask me all the time, how did you, you know, end up with a railroad? And I, I was fortunate during my couple of years of retirement to get to look at some, some things to do. And what really excited me about this was an opportunity to help change a company, help change a culture, and ultimately maybe even influence an industry. Um, you know, as an outsider, you know, not dissimilar in some ways to what Alan did with the auto industry and at Ford. And what was fascinating to me is almost like it was a message sent from somewhere 
um, I started talking to CSX and they said, you know, about six, or eight months ago, we rolled out this initiative called One CSX. Um, <laughs> and you can't make this up. And I'm like, and, and I asked more questions about it. And they said, yeah, it's about culture and leadership behaviors. And I said, tell me more, tell me more. And they said, the guy that originally came up with the idea modeled after one Ford. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I kind of know that story. And I know how I, I know, know a little bit about that. I know how this journey goes. Um, so it was like, it was meant to be. And so when you think about the railroad industry, you know, 196 years old, we're here at the B&O Museum today in Baltimore. Um, and so many, you know, 12 unions, just a lot of history and a lot of acrimony and frankly, a lot of ups and downs with government because, you know, early monopolies with the Vanderbilts and all kinds of other things with fighting and Rockefeller and Morgan and everything. But you think about this, the railroad industry built, helped build this country Help the North, Absolutely. help the North win the Civil War, help provide, you know, so many things, benefits. Opened that, up the West. Open up the West for sure. That was the real big carrot initially. Yep. Um, and and you think about it, and we still operate, you know, in the background, as we said earlier, moving, you know, 40% of the goods that are moved across this country more than 500 miles, and et cetera. And what's fascinating is, though, over time, there's been a lot of restructurings. There's been a lot of consolidation after the Staggers Act, and it brought, you know, Allow, allow it to happen. And now we're at a place where these, these companies are financially very healthy, but have had difficult relationships with most of other stakeholders other than investors. Um, um, actually, when I looked at the research two years ago, so 2021, of the S&P 500, three of the bottom five spots on Glassdoor uh, were the three public railroads. Um, wow, really? Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, wow, here's opportunity. Uh, right. And and so, and you think about a union contract that went on for three years, eventually Congress had to vote to enact the president's recommendations because it couldn't, you know, it couldn't get ratified by all 12 unions. So a lot of history. And so our, our view coming in was let's, let's concentrate, let's use one CSX because they already had it in motion, although it hadn't taken root as a rallying cry to work together, to improve the relationship and the experience with our employees have and a culture in service of providing much better service to our customers. Because one of the things, having been a customer of rail for 20 years at Ford or even before that in the auto industry, uh, most customers have not felt that rails prioritized them, that they, served, they were there to serve them. The construct of the structure is what it is. There's a regulator service transportation board set up just to regulate the, the railroad and to listen to customer complaints and to do and set um, precedent. And there were it a lot wasn't of really a partnership. It was no, a, no. Yeah. So, so our approach was we're going to focus on employees and cultures. I'm sorry, employees and customers through one CSX. And one CSX is all about having our employees feel respected, valued, appreciated, included, and listened to. And and we say that over and over and over again. All those words are important: respected, appreciated, valued, included, listened to. And and we're going to serve our customers. We're going to focus on serving our customers better. So. And, and that and that takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. All the things that you talked about. It takes a lot of communication. A lot of listening. So, in my first eight months in the job, I spent I took forty one visits to, to locations on our network. All but I think one or two of them unannounced. Like just show up, talk to people, ask them how it's going, what can we do to help, what are your problems, what's bothering you, what's frustrating you. Again, listening, building a relationship, and then going fixing those problems. So we were the first railroad to offer paid sick leave to our employees, our union employees, because that was an issue that came up in the negotiations and with Congress. 
I was just going to say, let, let's let's not be modest here. You guys helped avert a national rail strike in, in doing that. that, that no frankly, and, and that would be catastrophic to the economy, which is why Congress intervened. Right. And, and would have been catastrophic not just to the U.S. economy, I would submit, but, but where we are at right now with the fragility of the global economy sure. would have probably created another global financial crisis. No question about it. So That's I mean, no that, small that's thing. a big deal because you know, you, yeah. after a day or two, all the chickens die. They're not fed. You know, the utilities yeah. don't, don't have power. I mean, it's, it's it sounds cataclysmic, but it kind of is. But it is. Um, it is. And so, and I love how you kind of brought that 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 working together approach to this problem. And it was fascinating, Bryce, because what I learned from Alan and having worked with him, he was an outsider coming into the auto industry, and he respected the auto industry. He didn't try to, you know, even though we were losing money and it was difficult times. And he asked a lot of questions, but he focused on exactly what you and I talked about earlier, which is working together, one plan, one team, one goal. And then the, the four point plan that was over and over relentless. We've been doing the same thing at CSX and we've been asking our employees for feedback, doing surveys. We got 30% of our union employees to fill out a survey and give us responses. I had 3,600 written responses um, and I read all of them, every single one. That's of them. no small thing. You know, and it wasn't exactly the most enjoyable thing I ever did in my life because <laughs> they give you a lot of good feedback. That's honest. Um, but, you know, it's important. So just prioritizing our employees, trying to change the culture of how we work together, because we're a service organization and service organizations are all about people and people provide the service. And if they're if you go to a restaurant or anywhere, fast food restaurant or hotel or the service that's provided you is provided you by the people and they they have great attitude they provide great service they have a bad attitude they don't so so much energy on that but but alan coming in i learned that he came in he was respectful um he you know it was all about working together and changing the culture of how people work together and we've been doing the same thing at one csx and i'm proud to say in the first quarter of this year we had record customer service levels in our history and record profits right so they can wow, work, they can work together I love that. And that's an important learning that, that you getting record profits and record service levels. A lot of times, you know, people cynically, you know, look at these things as opposing things and, they, and, and that, you know, oh, if we if we if we show more love to our customers and stuff, then we're going to just going to eat into our margins and stuff. Even if it does eat into your margins a little bit, if it's raising the, the, the business as a whole, still still something that, that, that is a net positive. And a lot of people forget about that. They do. They're getting, they get so cost focused, uh, Bryce. So we had analysts ask me questions like, if you do paid sick leave, isn't that going to blow out your cost structure? And I'm like, well, what's the cost structure associated with losing good employees or employees not being engaged or employees not feeling like they're part of the, of the, of the service we want to provide? Or, you know, or what's the, you know, what should be the basic rights of, of, of how people feel about being employed by a big institution like a railroad? So, um, you know, well, you know that's a, just an interesting point of that. You know, it's like famously, Costco for decades has been beat up by analysts for paying their employees too much, and and you know, every I mean, for years the CEO of Costco was at, you know you're paying your your employees so much more than than any other supermarket or or, or big box store. What you know, you know, come on, you know, cut cut a little bit here. But they have they have the most insanely high retention rate and an insanely low uh, turnover rate. I don't know. I, these are old numbers from, from before the pandemic. It may have changed, but last time I heard it was like 80% more or more of their employees stay there their whole career. And it, you don't see that in, in retail settings. No, not in retail. But it's because sure. they're treated with respect, they're listened to. And, you know, the thing that, 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 that Costco has said over and over again 
is, yeah, we do pay our employees more, but do you know how much money we save by not having this churn, this constant churn? It net, net, it's a positive. It's hard to calculate that math. It's yeah. easy to calculate the math of if somebody gets a dollar an hour wage increase, but it's really hard to calculate the cost of turnover and everything else. I'll give you a great example in the rail industry. Historically speaking, for 190 some years, when downturns occur in the rail industry, because it's been a desirable job and you know union jobs and very desirable, high compensation relative to other options, um, they furlough the employees right away, like massive furloughing, and then they bring them back when the economy comes back. Something crazy happened during the pandemic. They the industry furloughed all the you know lots of big chunk of the of the workforce, and a lot of them didn't come back for the first time. Yeah. Um, and it was like wow. And it takes six months to to train a conductor in our system, so it's not like you can turn it around. It's expensive, and right. And so we had a couple years where we weren't providing good service to our customers because we were short of manpower among other things, and the whole industry. And, um, and in fact, that lost opportunity on the revenue side because we couldn't serve customers, but also affected the economy, which is why there's been so much scrutiny of it. And when you, when you go back and look at it, that turnover and, and, the, and the, you know, it would have been much better if we'd have paid everybody to stay. Um, yeah. We'd have made a lot more money. And but, you know, these are new learnings. But the, ne- the current generation, you know, is not as active in working with their hands as far as, you know, auto technicians from my last life or railroaders today. So we got to cherish the people we have and we have to continue to treat them well and make it make it once again, the kind of job and career people want to have be for all the right reasons. Absolutely. I mean, you know, middle of the 20th century, I mean, there, there, there was nothing, there was no better job you could get without a college education than working on the railroads. I mean, that's right. And, that's, the, and so that's why there's so, so many multi-generational, one of the great things about the railroads is, is you go anywhere I go, it's like multi-generational. Like my dad worked, you know, my uncle, my grandfather or whatever, because there were pride in what they did. There's a, a tremendous amount of pride in being a railroader as you found yeah. in your own family. Yeah, my grandfather was one. Yeah. And there's a, it's a tremendous amount of pride associated with it. It was great. Um, and there was passed down in a lot of these small communities, family to family. They always, they, but, we, but we lost a little bit of that. Um, and we got to bring it back because we got to create the culture where people want to recommend to family and friends. This is where you want to work because of how you're treated, how you feel, you know, not just your compensation, but the work you do and how and the environment you're in, which is so critically important. And to your many points you've made often about railroads and the younger generation, especially wants to be in something for the right reason, for the principle, for like the purpose. And we actually are the most fuel efficient way to move things. Um, better for the environment, safer for the, a lot safer for the, for everybody because we're on our own network. We're not on the congestion yep. for the roads, um, et cetera. And, and we got to bring that to life by creating the work environment of the future. So what do you, what do you, what do you think the future of rail looks like in the United States? I mean, I have to say, you know, I know that some of our, our European listeners, uh, are, are, are listening to this and, 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 and kind of thinking, well, this is a no brainer. Because, you know, that's a part of the world that has cherished its rail system right. since inception and never stopped seeing the value of it. But in this country, we, 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 we haven't always, as we talked about earlier. What do you think the, the future of rail in the, in the U.S. is and how, how can thinking differently about that future help it evolve? Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And so, yeah, back to you quickly on your European um, comparison. Yeah. You know, the Europeans, of course, grew up with a with a passenger rail system that's very easy to use, very common. Everybody uses it. It's, it's very efficient. We didn't grow up with that here. You know, while we have Amtrak, it's not nearly the level of what you see in Europe. <laughs> um, and 
and importantly, you know, but we have a freight rail system that's the, that's the envy of the rest of the world because it kind of grew up as we were growing up. Yeah. As you know, the country was growing and it created that growth. So the Europeans look at the European companies say, man, I wish I had freight rail like the North American team had. Right. North American people say, well, I wish we had, um, you know, passenger rail passenger like rail. Europe so I could get everywhere yeah. really quickly. Then the Asians, because they late come later, Chinese, Japanese have put in this high speed rail, which is really for passengers, really efficient and really easy to get places. But back to your question about the future of rail. I mean, first of all, we have to recognize the current state that I alluded to earlier, which is we have to create an environment where people feel this is a career they want to have and they're proud of it. And, and then we have, then leveraging those great employees to provide much better service to our customers because the history, the last recent history, 10 years or so, rail actually has declined in volume while shipments in America have gone up significantly. And so part of that's coal because coal volume is a big chunk of, you know, it's the largest single uh, volume that we move on our rail network. But so coal reduction, coal volume has reduced pretty significantly as we all know. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that rail because of service levels and for other reasons um, wasn't able to force some customers to go to truck and use truck and truck is faster it's actually more reliable and in many cases if are a shorter a smaller window um, but it costs more and it's bad worse for the environment and there's congestion use so we've got to create a world where people understand that they can rely on rail to provide the service levels much higher than we have in the past and move, move goods back to rail, which would be better for the economy, better for companies' cost structures, and better for the environment, and start to grow this business again. You know, one of the, back to Alan Mulally, one of the things he used to say, if you're not growing, you're dying. Um, and yes. we, haven't, we haven't been growing in 10 years as a rail network in the U.S., freight rail network in the U.S. Right. And But part of that was because we didn't serve customers well enough to give them motivation. We actually served them poorly enough that gave them motivation to move away from rail. <laughs> So yeah. what we have to do is focus on service levels much greater than we have consistently. And I believe customers will come back because there's benefits to doing real. But we push them away. So we got to have the network. We got to have the people and we got to have the, the, the consistent service to support that. Then we have to have the commitment to customers that we're not going away. We're going to stay at these higher levels. That's what we're trying to demonstrate at CSX. That's so important. And there's also a, a lot of potential new technologies out there in the future, some some closer, some farther. I mean, I've seen some amazing stuff. I don't know how 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 far in the future it is, but, you know, I, I was watching a, a demonstration of, you know, one of the problems, in, you know, in rail is that because because the way this country has, has grown up is not every part of the country is directly served by rail the way that it used to be. That's a big thing here in California where I live because, unfortunately, we, we, we tore up a lot of our tracks yeah. um, because the real estate value. But I was seeing how, you know, um, in terms of getting that last few miles from the railheads to, to, to commercial customers, the, we're not far away from having, I saw a thing using a, 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 a dirigible or a, or a large drone being able to kind of pick up a freight container instead of putting on a truck and, and adding to that congestion stuff, take it, you know, to a, to a nearby, you know, industrial center, you know, or something like that um, in certain areas where, you know, you're not, you know, dealing with, with hazards from that. And, and there's a lot of exciting things that are, that are out there in the future. 
There is. I mean, first of all, what's grown up in the network to support that last couple of miles is there's hundreds of short, what's called short line rails. Um, mm -hmm. If you remember your Monopoly board, one of the four rails was short line rails. And yeah. that's really the smaller, not the class ones like CSX or Union Pacific, but smaller ones that just move things a few miles and they own that track for just a few miles. But back to technology, first of all, on the locomotives, you know, we went from steam to diesel. Diesel has been around for a long time, but things are going to evolve, whether local, there may be some combination of electricity, but probably other types of propulsion systems coming, hydrogen or other things of that nature. So stay tuned for that. That's going to change both the emissions, but also some of the capabilities. And then there's the technology. That's, I was going to say, that's going to make moving stuff by rail so clean. It will make it so clean. It's, it's you know, it's doable. And we just right. need to make it because we're a closed network, right? And so, yeah. We do our own fueling. We have our own, you know, in our, at our rail yards and our own locations. So it's something that could happen. Um, that's that's something that's going to happen in the not too distant future. And then there's just the integration technology into everything that we do. I mean, we're at a state in the rail industry where our boxcars are not connected. So our boxcars don't, we don't exactly know really where they are at all times in a world where every package that's shipped everywhere on, you know, UPS, FedEx, USPS, whatever, you know, is known um, wherever it is all across the world. And we kind of tell you, well, it left this yard, it's on the way to that yard. Um, and so we kind of have a window, we kind of know things. So there's so much advancement in technology that can help, including accident avoidance. And um, you know, think about cameras and LIDAR and radar and sonar and all these things. How do we leverage all that to make our rail network safer? How do we leverage that to make help with block crossings and all that that happens? That's a frustrating thing for the for the communities, because again, they grew up around us. So we have all these crossings to deal with um, that, you know, there's some safety related, but also time um, pressure yep. for people. And so many things that technology can help us do better. Because, um, you know, we're working with steel wheels that have been around since the 19th century. And we're talking about some of our coupling mechanism things that have been around for 100 plus years. How does technology enable us to be better and safer and also lead um, in many different ways? And someday, There'll probably be autonomous rail. You know, we're a closed network. You know, so in, in many ways, it's easier than doing things on the highway or city roads. Right. You don't have people around and babies and children and animals and all those things, as we're a closed network. We own our own network. You know, all the rail and the land we own. It's our property, and we keep it. We keep it up. The taxpayer doesn't pay for the rails. We keep all. And that seems like that seems like a no brainer right there. I yeah, mean, you know. So, but you know, you got to have support from the government, and you also got to. Sure. You know, technology's got to get you there. We're not. We're right. not there right now, of course, because we're. You know, it takes unlike a vehicle, it takes about a mile or so to to stop a train. Um, yeah. Even in emergency mode, so you can't like you know instantaneously react to something. So it's different. But I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring technology, and frankly, my experience in our industry, I think, is asking us some more questions around this around how can we bring technology to the forefront of, of making rails more efficient and safer. And, and then ultimately, again, if we can get more trucks off the road, we can get more things, you know, for example, on even on hazmat materials, which got a lot of publicity with the East Palestine um, derailment by Norfolk sure. Southern, our competitor, Norfolk Southern, you know, 94% of hazmat spills in the country are trucking related, 1% are, are rail. But if you think about the noise around the communications about what's happened, you wouldn't think people would understand that. So it's a lot safer to be on rail. We just got to continue. Right. To, but we have to continue to get better. Um, but we also need to advance technology to be part of the solution.
It's the same thing, you know, people can't get their head, you know, head around the fact that, you know, they see plane crashes and they think, oh, I'm scared to fly. And it's astronomically safer to get on a, on a jetliner than it is to get in your own car and drive to the shopping mall. That's right. It's right. Same thing with rail. And you're correct. And so, but we can be better and we have to be better. And we have to set our high, sights higher and, and be better. Um, but it must be exciting, though, to be in, in a position to be able to help lead that. Yeah, I mean, we're fortunate. We, you know, because because of our cost structure and our margin structure, we have capital to deploy. Um, we've been able to invest in new technologies. We're continuing as an industry to do that. We're coming together as an industry to focus more together on safety as a, you know, after what's happened, and really be focused on working together. Um, but it, we have to continue to lead by example on the service front uh, and the employee culture front because it's a, it's going to take. I mean, I, I tell people when I joined General Motors actually in the '80s. Um, I was an intern in summer, intern in college, and then I worked full time. The auto industry environment with the union was 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 awful. I mean, it was such an animosity and this blue collar, white collar um, tension was nonstop. What forced the auto industry to change was, you know, competition. Transplants coming in, showing us that people can you know do things a different way. And it lost a lot of market share and it, it forced, it forced the U.S. automakers to adjust the relationships on focus on quality, focus on relationship with the union, get cost structure right. So over 20 years or so, from let's say late 80s to the late 2000s, massive transformation, but it took a couple of decades. But competition forced that and the threat of survival forced that. In the rail industry, we don't really have, in the freight rail industry, we don't really have that kind of competition when it comes to, we're not going to have a German or Japanese or Korean company come here and put a freight rail system in. Sure, um, um, but we have the competition with truck, which is you know they've and they've been the winner. They've been winning more volume, but so what? What's gonna what's gonna trigger us to to really have the motivation to get better and change? It has to be us. We have to do it ourselves. We have to challenge ourselves for the right reasons to serve the customer, to serve the environment, to serve the economy, and to make life better for our employees and for all our stakeholders. Back to this one team, you know, one CSX. It's all, for all stakeholders. How do we improve the, the relationships? How do we work through the problems, listen to each other, create an environment and make it better for everybody? And the best thing we can do is work together to increase that capacity, increase that capability, get more volume on the rail. We'll make more money, but more importantly, it'll be better for the environment, for the economy, and it'll be better for our employees if we do it the right way. And that's the motivation. And that's the inspiring thing for us with 1CSX to lead by example. Provide the best service in the industry, force others to match us. Provide the best you know, culture, force others to learn from that. And we'll, we'll learn from others as well. But that's what's exciting. And that, folks, is why leadership matters. Great conversation, Joe. Love having you on the show. So much learning here for, for, for folks. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners and viewers have too. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Bryce. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessments. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.